So we, this morning, um, we are wrapping up a conversation series, a message series out of Lamentations, the Old Testament text that Dale read this morning from the final chapter, chapter 5. And the conversation is about prophetic lament. Um, what does it look like for us to participate in this ancient spiritual practice of lament where believers cry out to God, uh, even protest and complain to God about what's wrong in the world, about injustice and oppression and suffering and devastation. And Lamentations gives us a picture of what it looks like to do that, rooted in a deep sense of faith and hope and trust in God's ability to hear and respond. Uh, And Lamentations 5, I can't say I've ever preached a Christmas message out of Lamentations 5, especially one that ends the way that that text ends. You know, uh, will you forget us forever? Will you utterly reject us? Um, And yet I do think this text uh, has something to say uh, about Christmas. Uh, And there is there is uh, there's a connection here that we can dig into in the story. One thing that's striking about Lamentations is that this is one of the books of Scripture where God does not speak. God doesn't speak at all in Lamentations. God is um, the subject. God is addressed. But never does God enter the dialogue, you know, like he does at the end of Job, where he comes in and kind of gives the answer. I mean, this is much more similar to the Psalms. This, we see one side of the equation. God doesn't speak. God, it's almost as if God is distant and absent somehow. And that is part of the reason that lament comes to life, up to life, to, to, to invoke God, to invite God to draw near. And interestingly, as I think about God not speaking, it makes me think about a bunch of friends that I have made recently with uh, folks who consider themselves atheist, uh, agnostic, or just apathetic otherwise. Um, And I've been reading, stay with me, I've been reading a philosopher um, who has helped make some sense of my own feelings. Um, his name is Charles Taylor. Chuck Taylor? Is that shoes, Chuck Taylor's? Yeah. So I don't think it's the same guy. Uh, he's a Harvard philosopher. And um, he wrote this 900-page book called A Secular Age, where he describes the cultural realities and conditions that come about to make an age secular, which, as he would define it, uh, secularity is just the possibility that non-belief could exist, that non-belief in God could exist. If that is an alternative, then it's a secular age of sorts, uh, which, which um, is interesting to think about even Dallas, Texas, which lots of my agnostic and atheist friends live right here in the Dallas area. Uh, and maybe you don't think about Dallas as being wrapped up or part of a secular age, but it very much is because the option of non-belief in God is a viable alternative for lots of my friends. They function just fine in the world 
with that kind of uh, perspective. Uh, and so, even Dallas, you know, is in the midst of this secular age. Uh, Taylor describes how people are hit by all of these cross pressures. Uh, the world used to be enchanted by spirituality, but now it's not. There's, there's a sense of transcendence on one hand, something beyond, but, but yet lingering questions if this is all there is. Maybe the, the natural world is all there is to offer. And what, what happens in this environment of secularity is that religious folks, maybe you'll resonate with this, this is part of what resonates with me, religious folks feel pretty fragile uh, in our faith because there are alternatives to belief. Uh, doubt is ever-present. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like, it can be very healthy and helpful. Uh, Ted, Ted's talk, Ted talk, uh, from 1 Corinthians. Maybe you remember his talk about 1 Corinthians 13, uh, about faith and hope and love. And he talked about how he was trying to cling to faith and hope and love. And, and to do that in the midst of doubt. I think, I think Ted's story... Um, it resonates with me. I think it's illustrative of what it's like to have religious belief in a secular age. There's some fragility to it. There's some tentativeness to it. I certainly feel that. Non-religious folks, on the other hand, are hit by these same cross pressures, Taylor says, and it creates a sense of malaise. You don't hear that word every day. Malaise. It's not mayonnaise. Malaise. Malaise is like a sense of uneasiness. A, uh, a sense of wonderment. Like, like, I'm pretty sure there's nothing beyond the ceiling. There's no religious significance. There's no spirituality to this world. But could there be something more? You know, it comes up when you think about death. Or when you think about someone you love. Could there be something more? than just the imminent, than just the here and now natural world. It got me wondering. You know, Taylor is a Harvard philosopher. He's describing cultural realities for the Western world. How much of secularity is an expression or an extension or an accompaniment of privilege? Affluence. And intelligence allow us the luxury of such fragility and malaise when it comes to God. Um, and it seems to find some confirmation in the fact that, that in the majority world, uh, in contexts where oppression abounds, uh, religion and spirituality are not in decline. They're booming. They are, they are growing at rapid pace. So, so much so that some authors would say the center of Christianity for a long time has not been, is not at the West. It's in the South. It's in the Southern Hemisphere. There's more Christians in Africa than there are in the whole West now. Um, and sure, you could say that religion is the opiate of the masses and that's why religion abounds in oppressive contexts. But what if the opposite is true? What if privilege is an opiate that numbs us to God? Didn't Jesus say as much when he said that it was almost impossible for the privilege to enter the kingdom of God? Who would need God if they had God-like power? And yet, that's not the reason 
God doesn't speak in lamentations. God is assumed. Not only assumed, God is spoken. God is named. God is the subject of the address. In verse 1, Remember, Lord, what's happened to us. Look and see our disgrace. Chapter 5 of Lamentations, this final piece, we're kind of on a downward slope. It peaks in chapter 3 with this feeling of, of hope, and it, it starts downward again into lament, into the realities of suffering and the devastation of Jerusalem. And it takes the form, as much as any of these five collected laments, of what we find in the Psalms. A lament psalm. It has a very predictable structure. In verse 1, you see this address to God. Remember God. Um, And in verses 2 through 18, you have this extended complaint from all of these different voices. And then at the end, like you would in Psalm 13 or any other famous laments that you might know, um, you have a word of trust. God, you're sovereign. You reign from generation to generation. And then an address and a plea for deliverance. God, would you restore us to yourself? It's it's interesting in this chapter that all the sufferers are praying and singing. All of the voices are heard. Children and women, elders, young men and princes. In fact, I wonder if it's children who are the dominant voice. Um, Verse 3 says, we have become fatherless. Our mothers are widows. It's the kids who are voicing lament in this final chapter. You know, an interesting turn. Uh, maybe you've heard the Hillsong song. Uh, you have turned my morning into dancing. That gets reversed in this lament. You have turned my dancing into mourning. Uh, harder to sing it that way. And another thing that's interesting about this chapter, uh, Sun Chan Ra, in his book that has kind of informed this conversation, uh, his book called Prophetic Lament, talks about how in the ancient Near East, their practice of lament, this city lament, would commonly end where they get to the end and basically the god or gods would return to the city and the city would be restored. And everything would be made right and the city would would be celebrated and renewed and yay, there's a resolution and a happy ending. And and which makes the ending of Lamentations 5 all the more stark, right? Uh, Because this is how Lamentations ends. Why do you always forget us? Why do you forsake us so long? Restore us to yourself, Lord, that we may return. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. That's how it ends. Uh, Almost like, I think it's Psalm 88 that talks about the lament ends with, and darkness is my closest friend. Like you get to the end and there's no sense of release. There's no sense of resolution. It ends unresolved, as as Beth talked about last week. An unresolved chord, an unresolved scale. It ends with a sense of tension and longing and, and waiting. 
Have you utterly rejected us? Are you angry with us beyond measure? God doesn't speak. But God is certainly the object of hope for the future. And the cry of Judah in lament is for God to restore them, not not to get a new temple necessarily, to get a new city, but for them to be connected to God again. Uh, It puts the ball in God's court, finally, and waits. Uh, in this series, we've talked about what does it look like. And I, I really appreciated kind of think the, the way that we read this text. Um, you know, we're we're uh, I think we're all white in this room this morning. You know, um, and whiteness in the States means relative privilege, uh, um, relative ease compared to our friends and neighbors of color. Um, and it's been an interesting perspective to think about what does it look like and mean for us as as privileged folks to participate in lament. And um, that's been a constant theme as we have journeyed through Lamentations. Uh, and last week, Beth and Sarah talked about how uh, lament is a spiritual practice that we engage that helps us to kind of keep our humanity as folks of privilege. And, and in a sense, lament on behalf of our friends and neighbors who are in oppressive contexts, who are crying out to God for something different. Uh, it's lament on behalf of. And I think Lamentations 5 helps us further. And I, I think Ted voiced this talking about Lamentations 1. Um, the idea that, that Jeremiah does not just give a voice on behalf of people who don't have a voice. Jeremiah... Let's the folks who are typically voiceless speak. Uh, which assumes, which means, Jeremiah comes close. He knows. He sees. Uh, he is in relationship with the children and with the young women who are sexually assaulted in Jerusalem, with the, the princes who are hung up by their hands, with the elders who were disrespected at the gates. It, it assumes presence and relationship. It's not just I'm lamenting on behalf of. It's I know folks. I'm part of folks who are in the trenches of oppression. And I am giving them space to speak for themselves. Uh, it's the, the listen up and shut up that Ted talked about earlier in this conversation. I remember uh, making friends with some uh, Iraqi refugees who had fled Baghdad. Uh, it's been several years ago now. Uh, some of you know, uh, some of you know Hassan and Rama, and we met them. And uh, Hassan is a really talented engineer. They've got three beautiful girls, and um, he had worked for the Corps of Engineers in Baghdad, and. Uh, he gets the opportunity to come here, leaves all of his family, um, and and with with their support, but also with great sadness. You can see the fabric of relationship that's torn for them, and they they move into Vickery Meadow and they just fight to try to make a way in Dallas to get their you know none of the credentials translate into the United States, and so you have all of these hurdles for work and employment and revenue. 
and we became friends in the midst of this. Uh, and we started doing the kinds of things that friends do. And one of the things that we did was we invited them. Hey, would you would you come with us? We um, Brian would really love it if you come and watch um, a basketball game uh, of his. And it was in Lake Highlands somewhere um, in a gym. And they said, Yeah, we'd love to. And um, Rama um, wears a hijab uh, uh, everywhere she goes, so she's very easy to identify as a, at least ostensibly as a Muslim woman. Um, and they are, they look Middle Eastern, right? Uh, but I can't, I can't forget being struck by when we come to this gym in a mostly white neighborhood with mostly white teams playing, and Hassan and Rama bring their kids with us, and we sit down. Just the dozens and dozens and dozens of times that people shifty eye stare, um, and how uncomfortable that is for me. As the white dude in the room, and then and then uh, uh, being amazed, like thinking, like I cannot imagine what it's like. And this is in the area post nine eleven uh, immigration ban, all of the rhetoric pumping up nationally. Uh, I can't imagine what it's like to be an intrusive body in someone else's culture. But it's that kind of presence and proximity. That helps us give voice to lament ourselves. And it helps us even to know what our friends might be lamenting about. I think that's a challenge to us as a community. Simply just being present with those who are at the margins. Who are under the thumb. Who, are, who would cry out to God uh, in the midst of injustice. So Lamentations ends with this minor note with a lack of resolution with some unresolvedness uh, putting the ball in God's court waiting for God to speak does God speak? Uh, what, what do we I mean we were several centuries removed what happens? Does God speak? and, and if so what does God say? Enter a brief history lesson uh, in the decades that follow. So this is this is late sixth century, like five eighties, five nineties BC. Several dec- decades later, Babylon is overthrown. Persia comes in. King of Cyrus issues a decree that allows the elite that were in captivity to return to Jerusalem. To build a temple, Nehemiah comes back um, to build a wall, and this an, a, another temple. There, there is some restoration and renewal for uh, for Judah and for Israel in getting a return to the homeland. Uh, and you see this voice in Isaiah, Isaiah forty, um, verse one. God speaks, and this is what God says: "Comfort, comfort my people," says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. 
that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So they build a new temple, this historical symbol of God's presence and glory with them. But it pales in comparison to the first temple. So much so that Haggai, one of the prophets, observes how shabby it seemed compared to Solomon's temple. Um, In Haggai chapter 2, he asks, Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing? So even even after the promise of temple being rebuilt comes about, uh, there's still kind of a letdown. Like, huh, well, that's not what we were hoping for. I mean, we got the temple, but uh, uh, something's missing. Haggai speaks into this, and the Lord speaks. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. So you have Haggai saying, there is something missing, something about the glory of God, the desire of all nations that's going to come and fill this house with glory. Centuries later, the son of refugees was born in a barn outside of Jerusalem. And the New Testament writers saw God speaking. Ultimately, not, not through a text, not through a prophet, uh, a prophet's prophecy, but through a person, uh, the person of Jesus. Through this person that was born on the margins as a person of color under the thumb of a different system of oppression, the Roman Empire, uh, John describes Jesus as the word of God. This person, this, this anointed one is how God has spoken. It's how God is speaking. It's interesting too, kind of some of the echoes of temple for John. John says that, that Jesus is the word and he becomes flesh and he tabernacles. He dwells among us. It's an allusion to temple. Just as the, the Old Testament temple uh, was filled with the glory and presence of God, so Jesus is the new temple who's filled with grace and truth, the glory of God. And not only that, it, in, in the person of Jesus, God comes and tabernacles. Jesus is this new glory of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40. You might remember the Isaiah 40 text I read. John the Baptist quotes this and says, prepare the way of the Lord. In the person of Jesus, God arrives. God shows up to bring God's people out of bondage, out of oppression. Matthew talks about, we sang about this morning, how uh, Jesus is the Emmanuel of Isaiah's prophecies. Jesus is God with us. For those who are oppressed, Jesus is the promised liberator whose presence 
changes everything. In Christ, we are restored to God. And the longing of lamentations is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. There is, there is resolution in the person of Jesus. The way that God responds to the cries of His people for renewal, for restoration, for liberation, is to come in human form and to be present. And, and not as a king or some, some mighty, powerful ruler, but as a very person on the margins of existence, right along with those folks in their lament. God and Jesus enters into the unresolvedness, enters into the lament, enters into the brokenness and weakness of human existence. And the good news of Christmas is simply that. That God is with us. That God is not absent. Um, That God does, at the end of the day, speak. And He speaks in person. He speaks in flesh. He speaks in embodied grace and truth to us and to our friends at the margins. Yet it wouldn't be honest to say that Christ has resolved everything. Uh, He hasn't yet, at least, because here we are. Stuff is still unresolved. Death and suffering and injustice, the, the, the haunting of a secular age, the fragility, the malaise that we experience. We're still waiting for Jesus to return and set everything right. Which is why lament is still so relevant. Uh, Because brokenness remains. But more than that, because hope has arrived in the person of Jesus. And how much more founded is our lament? Because of Jesus' arrival. In the manger, to the cross, through the tomb. Uh, I've been reading recently for uh, one of my classes... <clears throat> a book by uh, an African American scholar who basically writes uh, about uh, a- trying to ask, answer the question how did African American slaves um, read or, or more accurately hear the Bible uh, they were given a certain reading of scripture from their, their white masters that Jesus is a spiritual savior and he is the, um, the cure to your spiritual ailment. And yet, somehow, subversively, uh, African-American slaves, as they were introduced to Jesus, as they heard the, the stories of Jesus healing and exercising and delivering, they began to understand Jesus as the liberator. Jesus was the liberator from sin and oppression and not just spiritually but also socially Jesus being the king had some social ramifications uh, even though that was the furthest thing that their white masters wanted them to ever think or come to know in some, in some wonderful beautiful ways these African American slaves understood and knew uh, Jesus in a way that their masters never could. Jesus to them was the new Moses. 
The one who leads his people out of Egypt, out of oppression, out of bondage and into a new hope. And and that gives me some hope coming alongside hearing those stories. It gives me a new lens to have hope and faith in Jesus wanting to be an ally and an advocate and a friend and to give voice to lament among those who are at the margins that even those in great oppression could sing songs of hope in Jesus as the liberator when that hope was not yet realized because they knew that um, that if they died, they would get to see Jesus. They knew that God was at work in the world to to subvert and upend the institution of slavery. And they knew a time would come in the future when God would fix it for good. And they put all of their eggs in that basket. Uh, I want to I want to share a song. I'm not going to sing it because I don't know how it's sung. But I love the lines of this song, this spiritual of hope from African-American slaves um, who sing, Children, we shall be free. When the Lord shall appear, give ease to the sick, give sight to the blind, enable the crippled to walk. He'll raise the dead from under the earth and give them permission to talk. That is the Christmas story. 